Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. Good afternoon. Everyone's doing well. Uh, like Nick said, my name is Tyler. Um, I'm on staff at Coa Brookline, and it's good to be with you all. Um, I think I said this last time I was here too, but so many people that I greatly love in this room um, for a number of reasons. So it's always good just to be back with you guys, see you all, say hello. Um, just to kind of reiterate some things Nick said, uh, it's, if it's your first time here, um, just want to say glad you're here. I know that coming to a church, whether you consider yourself Christian or not for the first time, can be something that can bring about a lot of anxiety, a lot of questions, a lot of confusion. Um, so just, uh, you know, participate as much or as little as you'd like. And, and really, um, we'd really encourage you just to get connected. Um, I don't have the number memorized, but text that number that Nick kept hitting up, and we'd love to connect with you. Um, and two other things before we dive in. Again, just reading what Nick said. Happy Father's Day um, to the dads out there, those that are here, those that are, that are listening. Uh, we, we celebrate you today and the important role you play in the lives of your families and the lives of your children, um, while at the same time acknowledging that, that this day can bring a lot of mixed emotions for people. Um, whether they had a father that was absent, an abusive father, um, there are those that want to be fathers but can't be fathers for whatever reason. Um, so we celebrate the fathers today. We also grieve with those who this day brings about questions and, and confusion and mixed emotions. And secondly, again, we celebrate Juneteenth, right? Uh, this is an important day in our nation's history um, and to some extent is the ending of, of, of the legal institution of, of slavery, right? So we celebrate that. So um, we've been going through the book of James the past few weeks. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of James the whole summer. And um, James is kind of called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, and it's called that because if you read it, you'll notice it's a lot of really practical kind of instruction, um, practical kind of wisdom, or a lot like the book of Proverbs, right? You kind of read line by line. It's just piece of wisdom after piece of wisdom. And, and we've heard a lot of good stuff already, right, in the first chapter. Um, we were first told the first week to count it all joy. Uh, when we face trials of various kind, because we know that for those who, who know God and trust God, trials work for our own good. We've also been told to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That certainly sounds like something you'd find in the book of Proverbs. Um, and then in verse 22 of chapter 1, which I think is probably the central idea of the book of James, we're told to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so that, that one piece of instruction, that one piece of wisdom kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book. So our passage today and in every passage moving forward, you can kind of read through this lens of don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And then last week you heard Pastor Aaron talk about um, this idea that pure religion is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I think James, I think he mentions this right before he shifts to our passage because back then um, society was kind of inclined not to care for orphans and widows. Right, these were the kind of people that society typically did not interact with too much. And to some extent, society is still the same today. Um, but this kind of leads us right into our passage where James tells us to show no partiality. As I was kind of thinking about this idea of partiality um, in my own life the past two weeks, a couple of things came to mind. Um, first, uh, at Coa Brookline, I was part of this community group a few years ago. Uh, many of you were in that community group. Um, and it was a great group. Uh, some of my best friends, some of my best memories in Boston kind of circulate around this group. Um, we were the kind of group that did everything together. We, we went on CG retreats together. We vacationed together. A lot of people ended up being roommates from that group. 
Um, we, we just hung out, we did all the same things, we spent a lot of time together. Um, and as I look back, it's kind of interesting that I notice we were all kind of the same, right? In some way, shape, or form, we were all kind of the same. So most of us were young professionals, right? Not too far removed from college. Um, there was maybe one or two married couples, no kids. We also all lived in Alston, which I'm not saying Alston is like the young, like single area, but like kind of. Uh, so we all had this kind of time to spend together, um, and we were all the same. Even the way we kind of communicated care to each other, even the way we communicated love to each other, it was all very similar, right? Even answering the question, what do you want to do today? Well, a lot of people answered that kind of the same. And so we all just spent time together, knew each other very well, expressed care and love and things like that the same way. And so this is, these are all genuine friendships, too. But I remember one person in particular joined the group after the group was kind of well-established and set in its ways, and, and she didn't fit that mold. Right? She wasn't um, necessarily a young professional. Um, she didn't communicate care or, or love the same way. Um, she, she, if you asked her what she wanted to do today, it'd be kind of the opposite of what everyone else in the group would want to do today. Um, and so you can imagine kind of some of the difficulties she had to step into a group like that, where everything the group did to some extent, was the exact opposite of kind of her preferences or her desires or the way she did things. And to her credit, she joined in. She tried to come alongside us as we did these things. And to her credit, she invited us into the way she cared and communicated and expressed love. But the thing is, um, most of the people in that group, we didn't really take her up on it. Right? We, we were kind of set in our ways. We wanted to do what we wanted to do, and we didn't want to have to kind of bend over backwards to make this person feel welcome. We didn't want to change our preferences or the way we related to each other in any way because that was comfortable in order for this person to feel comfortable. And there were a number of other factors at play, but this person eventually left the church. And so as I look back on that, I have no doubt that the way that CG functioned in that moment contributed to that. Another scenario I can think of years ago when Coe Brookline first started, um, there was a black woman that came into the church, and at this point we were pretty far off the mark from being a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. Not that we've gotten there now, uh, but we're pretty far off the mark. And she comes in and, and sits down and week one, she, she, she worships, um, she hears the sermon, she prays, she gets up, she leaves. No one says a word to her, the whole service. Week two, she comes back, comes in, walks past all the greeters, the welcome table, comes in, sits down, worships, hears the sermon, leaves. No one says a word to her. Week three, this person finally comes in, sits down. Another person finally says something to her. It's another black woman. They talk about how no one has spoken to either of them yet. They both sit, to, sit together. They worship. They hear the sermon. They get up, they leave. No one says a word. Finally, finally, week four, someone comes up and says hello. And this person, she, she loves our church. She, she's a really faithful Christian, really mature Christian. She stuck with us. She became a member. She served our church well. She loved our people well. Um, and she eventually told us that this kind of happened. And she was just like, yeah, like this, this sucked. Like this, this hurt. And again, a lot of other factors at play, but this person eventually left the church as well. And so I think when we consider those two examples, it shows us that partiality is not some kind of petty thing. Right? It's not some small sin, that there are all these other sins first, and, and then maybe there's this, this preference or this, this partiality is this small thing that doesn't really impact too many people, that we don't put too, many, too much thought to. But really, it's the opposite, because I think what those instances point to and what James is ultimately trying to tell us is that partiality 
is more dangerous than you think. It's kind of our main point for today. Partiality is more dangerous than you think. The Greek word used for partiality there, it literally translates as receiving the face. And so it's this idea that you're just making judgments uh, based on face value and then you're acting according to that. A lot of other translations use the word favoritism or discrimination. Um, One translation poses it as a really hard-hitting question. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor some people over others? How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor some people over others? And just to make sure his readers understood, James provides an example of this, right? Verses two through four. He paints this picture of of two men uh, walking into the church. One of them is uh, a poor man, and they could tell because of his clothing, right? I have to imagine his clothing was maybe torn up a little bit. Maybe it was dirty. Maybe he smelled. The other man was the opposite of that. He looked put together. He was a rich man. They could tell from his clothing, right? He was wearing the Gucci belt, right? He had all the nice stuff on. He looked put together. He's wearing a gold ring that that symbolized wealth back then. And the Christians in in this example, they go out of their way for the rich man, right? So they see these two men enter and they immediately gravitate towards the rich man and they start to honor him. They say, hey, sit in this best seat. Right? Whereas the poor man, I have to imagine, maybe he walks in and he's kind of, you know, standing in the back, just, just waiting for someone to say hello. And finally they do. And they say, stand off to the side or come sit at this person's feet, which is something a servant would have done back then. And so the Christians in this example, they make judgments. They are partial towards one of the men purely based on their appearance. And I think most of us can understand that, right? This this example written 2,000 years ago, it's not too hard for us to understand. Something like this somewhat happens today, right? We we get that. Another way to kind of frame it for us to better understand, let's just say two two people walk into the church, into this church, and one of them is a a high-ranking executive, a VP in the field that you're in, and and, and she's just really good at what she does, and, and basically she can pay dividends for your career. The other person that walks in is, is a church member that's been coming here for a while. And you know this person. This is the person that always asks you to pray for their mom's best friend's sister's cat. This is the person that has a lot of anxiety about a lot of things, and they're going to kind of spill all their prayer requests out and tell you about all their problems just in the church lobby over a 30-second conversation. Who are you more inclined to gravitate towards? Who are you more inclined to talk to? So James is very concerned about this kind of thing happening, right? Because partiality is more dangerous than you think. So a few things to consider in light of that, a few things we're going to walk through. We're just going to walk through the desires and the dangers of partiality, the desires and the dangers. We'll consider two desires and three dangers. Two desires, we'll consider uh, why are we inclined to be partial in the first place? What's driving that desire? Or what is the desire behind partiality? Right, we'll consider one of the desires that is in the example that James gives, and then we'll consider um, a desire that I think is just really relevant for, for our church, for our culture today. And then three dangers, right? Three dangers. We'll look at the dangers in partiality and answer the question, why is, it, why is it wrong in the first place? Two desires, three dangers. Earlier in chapter one, James tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So when it comes to the sin of partiality, the question is, what is the desire behind that? What are we desiring 
What are we being lured and enticed by? And I think there's a lot of right responses to that question, but two broad categories that I just want to hit. The first is comfort, and the second is self-gain, kind of self-benefit, self-advancement. Comfort and self-gain. Comfort. So the early example I gave in my CG, uh, we were partial towards, towards each other because we wanted to be comfortable. Right? We didn't want our nice, already established CG to stretch out of our comfort zone to welcome in someone that was different than us. We wanted to remain as we were. We wanted to remain comfortable. We were used to each other's presence. We were used to how things functioned. We were used to how things went. And so we were partial towards each other because we were comfortable. And, and, and it's possible then that the people you surrounded yourself with could be because you want to retain some sort of comfort. The people that you are partial towards is so that you can remain par- uh, comfortable. And not only do we seek comfort, we seek to actively avoid discomfort, right? So in our partiality towards others, we are trying to avoid them making us uncomfortable in any way. If you're here the first week, you know that James encourages us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kind. So ponder this idea of what if not showing partiality towards someone is a trial? What if doing life with people you don't normally vibe with, you don't normally get along with, what if that in some sense is a trial? Not in the way of this trial, this, this interacting with this person is some sort of heavy suffering, but in the way of this is a trial that God is going to use to make you better reflect Jesus to other people. The second desire to consider is self-gain or advancement. And I think we can see this in James's example in verses two through four. So the Christians, I have to imagine in this example, likely thought that they were going to get something from the rich people or the rich man, right? Whether it's a big tithe or money or uh, influence or status, right? They thought that Honoring the rich, engaging with the rich at the expense of the poor was in their best interest. And I think in the example earlier of this high-ranking executive and the church member, I think there's, to some degree, uh, all of us in this room will be tempted to talk to the high-ranking executive because of the benefit it brings us. And ultimately what's going on here is not necessarily what we do or don't do or we honor or don't honor, right? but rather it's valuing people for the wrong reasons, for what they can give you, And in some senses, it's looking at people as objects, right? And what's happening is our desires are disordered. Or to use Augustine's phrase, we have disordered loves. And so our love for the other person is disordered, and we put what they have the ability to give us in front of just the fact that they are another human being created in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect in the same way that the person beside them is, rich or poor. Being partial towards someone at the expense of others always ends up in devaluing the other person. One commentator speaking of this said, the improper divisions being made among the visitors in the assembly is nothing more than a reflection of the improper divisions harbored in the minds of believers. So that one more time. The improper division being made among the visitors is nothing more than a reflection of the improper divisions harbored in the minds of believers. So in other words... This is a bigger problem than honor or dishonor. This is a bigger problem than vibe with, don't vibe with. This is a bigger problem than 
who you want to communicate with and who you don't want to communicate this, right? This is improper valuing and devaluing of people. This is improper valuing and devaluing of people made in the very image of God. And I think with, with this kind of thing, it's also easy for us to fall into the trap that, that this is one part of your life that you get to control, right? Like who you hang out with, who you spend time with, who are you friends with, who do you talk to? I, I would argue it's not most people's natural disposition to say, God, who do you want me to talk to today? God, who do you want me to hang out with tonight? God, who are the people that you are putting in front of me over and over again that I don't want to talk to? I think our natural disposition is to say, who do I like? Who do I get along with? Who makes me comfortable? Who do I not have to try very hard to be with? But what God says is the opposite, right? So that's the desires of impartiality, this idea of comfort and self-gain. But now James uses the rest of this passage, verse 5 onward, to remind us of the dangers with impartiality. What is wrong with partiality? And I'm going to read verses 5 through 13 again. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blasphemy the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Sorry, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I think what we see here is James is really going to great lengths to prove the point that partiality is a serious sin. Right? It's possible that maybe his original audience, they weren't taking it that seriously. Kind of we talked about earlier, maybe we kind of view it as like there's this um, big arena of kind of serious, bigger sins that, that really cause issues in people's lives. And then maybe um, not even the second degree or the third degree, but way down the list is partiality. But James kind of refutes that idea. He spends a lot of time, the majority of our passage, talking about how serious partiality is. And so he uses verses 5 to 13 to tell us that partiality is dangerous for three reasons. Right? Partiality is dangerous because it goes against God, it goes against others, and it goes against the law. So we'll talk about those three things before we close. God, others, and the law. First, partiality goes against God and the way God values others. Right, we see this in verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So in other words, James is pleading with them not to be partial because it's not how God operates. James is pleading with them to not be partial because that's not in line with the character of God. Right, and, and ultimately, that's the issue here, right? We're, we're, we're told to not show partiality not because of some rule, but rather because it's a reflection of God. And God is impartial. Completely impartial. And that's something we see all over scripture. I consider the story of David. You know, God appoints this man named Samuel, Samuel to, to go and find the next king of Israel. And, and Samuel connects with this guy named Jesse. Jesse has like 20 billion sons. And 
Jesse brings out each son one by one in front of Samuel to, to see, is this, is this my son, the next king of Israel? And the first two are, are really tall, really handsome. And, and Samuel literally thinks, these, surely this looks like a king. Surely this is man, the man. Surely this is God's choice. But then the scripture notes that God literally says this to Samuel. God says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so every time Jesse kept bringing one of his sons, God kept swiping left, right? No, 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 no. Until eventually Samuel's like, what am I doing here? God, did you even send me here? Like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? He was like, is this it? Is this, is this all there is? And then Jesse, who didn't even consider David, didn't even consider his youngest son, says, yeah, there's my youngest son, but he's, he's my youngest and he's a shepherd, right? Well, he's, he's surely not going to be king. And so um, Samuel tells Jesse to go get him and Jesse brings in David. I have to imagine David torn up clothes, smelly, working in a field with sheep. And God looks at that man and says, that's the guy, the youngest one, the smelliest one, the one with the torn up clothing. That's the guy. Another one that always gets me um, is the story of uh, Leah in, in Genesis, Genesis 29, right? So, so uh, Leah married this man named Jacob, and, and it's a whole story. Leah's father um, tricked Jacob into marrying Leah because Jacob actually wanted to marry Leah's sister, Rachel. And so Jacob served uh, Leah's father seven years, and then he got tricked, and he married Leah, and he eventually married Rachel too. Um, but then from that point onward, Leah was kind of on the receiving end of some of these things we talked about. Right, Jacob and everyone around her was kind of partial towards Rachel, her sister. And the scripture notes that literally Leah was hated. Leah was hated. And then verse 31, uh, it kind of always gets me. It says uh, that Leah was hated. The Lord saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb and gave her a child. So in other words, God saw that she was hated and he had compassion on her. God saw that Leah was hated and he cared for her. Yes, because God loved her, but also because God is impartial. And ultimately, we look to Jesus, right? God in the flesh, right? right? God came down, lived this perfect life that we couldn't, obeyed the Father perfectly, completely holy, completely sinless. And I think we look back on that, and when we have the totality of the scriptures, and we understand, okay, uh, that makes sense that Jesus would do that. But back then, they, they were stunned with who he hung out with, right? Look at the Pharisees' reactions, You hang out with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing? Aren't you supposed to be a holy man of God? But our Lord is impartial. So partiality is dangerous because it goes against God. The second reason James tells us that partiality is dangerous is because it goes against others. It goes against other people. It honors one at the expense of the other. And in the example that James gives, he also notes that it's completely illogical to be favoring the rich here. Verse six calls, uh, James calls them out and he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. And so again, it's, it's not that they chose to honor someone, but it's that they chose to honor someone at the expense of someone else. It's that they chose to honor the rich at the expense of the poor, right? So partiality, it doesn't just look bad on you. It's not something that you just need to figure out between you and God. Your partiality affects other people. My partiality affects other people. And as a slight aside, you know, some of you hear and you hear this text, you read this text and you're like, yes, of course I agree. Like this is a bad thing, but you yourself know that you're on the receiving end of this. 
right? You yourself typically are the, the person that doesn't receive partiality from other people, right? Maybe you feel like the poor man that's kind of told to stand, stand to the side. Or maybe you've just felt continuously outcasted in some way, shape, or form in various spheres, whether it's the church sphere or the work sphere or your friends or school. Or maybe you've just felt like Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, have favored other people over you. And here's the main thing you need to remember is that your heavenly father doesn't feel that way about you. Scripture says that God is not partial and that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. In other words, God cares about those in society that society is inclined not to. God loves those that society is inclined not to. Again, looking to Jesus as this ultimate, ultimate example of this, we see this all over the Gospels, right? Jesus, he tends to move towards the people that feel rejected. He tends to move towards the people that feel alone. He tends to move towards the people that feel like an outcast, right? And in some sense, it's the very thing that draws him near to them. And this is where Jesus, he starts to break down every preconceived notion you might have. Right, so some of you come in here today and, and you don't want to be here. You think, I have to get my life together before I come to church, before I come into the presence of the Lord, before I go to communion group. No, your brokenness, your mess, that's the very thing that draws Jesus near to you. Again, this is something we see all over scripture. Consider the woman at the well in John 4. Right at first glance, this holy son of God, what would he have to do with this woman? She was a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews don't get along. That's the equivalent or more so of, you know, your most, most outspoken Republican friend, your most outspoken Democratic friend, most outspoken All Lives Matter friend, the most outspoken BLM activist friend. She's had multiple marriages. Not only that, she's now sleeping with a guy that's not her husband. Right? She probably hasn't stepped foot in a church or a synagogue in, for years. My guess is she's carrying the, the guilt and the shame of all this sin in her life and, and this, this really broken backstory. And here she is, face to face with Jesus, looking into the very eyes of God, and he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't condemn her. He offers her life. Right? He says, everyone who drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. He offers that because our God is impartial. Dane Orland says, when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. So friends, if you're here and you feel like you're on the receiving end of this, you feel like an outcast, you agree with this text, but then you feel like, I am the poor man in this scenario. You have to know Jesus moves towards you. God moves towards you. And then again, the flip side of that, those of us, all of us, who in some way we do show partiality in our own lives, we have to consider the fact it costs other people. It hurts other people. And considering the impact that partiality has on people, it's very possible that your partiality is the very thing keeping someone from hearing the gospel. It's very possible that my preferences my inability to leave my comfort zone and, and interact with someone that I don't necessarily want to, that's the very thing keeping them from hearing the good news. That's the very thing that is keeping them from hearing this, this, this gospel truth that, that God, even though they're a mess, he loves them and he cares for them and that if they would just put their trust in Christ, then they could be in a relationship with God. It's possible 
that our partiality is getting in the way of them hearing that message. James also makes the point that that they went out of their way to honor the very people that would dishonor them. Right? They were partial to the very people who blasphemed Jesus, who blasphemed God. They were partial towards the very people that would kind of turn around and spit back in their face. Now, that does raise a question, though, logically. Well, doesn't Jesus tell us to give our tunic to the very people that would, would sue us? Yes, he does, but not at the expense of someone else and not for the purpose of comfort or self-gain. The last reason James tells us that partiality is wrong is in verses 8 through 13, and he's basically making the point that, that partiality fails to uphold the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's, in fact, the antithesis of it. And to back up the seriousness of this claim, he reminds us that if we sin in just one particular way, we're, we're held guilty for breaking the entirety of the law. At first glance, that's not, that's not fair. Right? That doesn't feel fair. Right? You get a speeding ticket, you actually go to court for breaking every law. Right? Like That doesn't feel fair. But we have to remember when we're sinning, it's not just sinning against a sentence. It's not just sinning against a book. We're sinning against a holy God. One commentator makes helpful clarifying comments on this. He says, the individual commands of the law are part and parcel of one indivisible whole because they reflect the will of the one lawgiver. To violate a commandment is to disobey God himself and to render a person guilty before him. So in other words, we are fully guilty because sin is fully against God. Right? Sin is completely against God. Sin is completely against who he is. An imperfect illustration, if I'm faithful to my wife 99.9999% of the time, but one night I'm not, am I faithful to my wife? No, I'm unfaithful. And so James... That, that's, so that's a big concept, right? This idea that if you're, you're guilty for one sin, you're guilty for, for the entirety of the law. That's a, that's, a, that's a big thing. I'm almost like that needs its own sermon. That needs its own sermon series, right? That at least needs its own Bible passage. But what is, what is the context in which James shares this? It's in the context of partiality. And so what he's doing here is he's unveiling this huge, enormous concept to prove his point that partiality is more dangerous than you think. That partiality is a serious sin. He reminds us, as he closes out this passage and as we begin to close, to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In other words, speak and act as those who belong to Christ. I love that he uses the term law of liberty. Um, if, if you were here a few weeks ago, that pops up in chapter one as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's this idea, this law of liberty, it's this idea that, that Jesus is the one who gives you the freedom to obey. Right? It's this idea that, that being bound to Jesus, that's the very thing that gives you freedom. And it seems counterintuitive, but being uh, bound to Christ, being enslaved to Christ, that's the very thing that gives you the freedom that you truly want. That's the very thing that gives you the freedom to obey God the way you were meant to. Speak, to speak and to act as those who belong to Christ means to act without partiality because Jesus acts without partiality. So as we close, just some things to think about considering partiality in our own lives. 
First, you have to dig into it and figure out what are you desiring in these moments? With the people you're partial towards, what are you desiring? Is it comfort? Is it self-gain? Is it something else? Is it just a way to avoid interacting with people that make you uncomfortable? And then you have to ask yourself, who's regularly in your life right now? That's kind of a clue, right? That'll get you on the right trail. Who's at your dinner table? Do they look like you? Do they act like you? Do they talk like you? Ask yourself, why am I friends with, with these people? Why am I friends with these people in your lives, in your life? Examine your life right now and ask, where might I be partial towards other people? Where might I be failing to love my neighbor as myself by being partial towards other people at the expense of others? Because the reality is, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to look like Jesus, if you want to walk like Jesus, the very people, the very people that you don't feel comfortable with, the very people that uh, you are not partial towards, the very people you don't want to be around, those are probably the very people you need to, in some way, shape, or form, be with. Partiality is more dangerous than you think.